Well, we are continuing our study in First Peter. Um, we're coming close to the end. We're getting there. We have about uh, just the end of chapter 4 here, and then we'll finish up with chapter 5 over the course of the next two Sundays. Um, and, you know, as you go through First Peter, you've noticed a, a constant theme, a drumbeat, sort of how to live life in the midst of a, a world that is hostile to the gospel. And that continues, but maybe less, how do I say it? You know how I've talked about how First Peter kind of goes back and forth between gospel and truths, the indicatives, and gospel imperatives, the way we're to live. This, is, this week is kind of focusing on that, that gospel truth, the indicative of who we are. And so we come to get a picture of what it means to be those who suffer for Christ in this world. What, is, what does that look like? What does it mean? For us, Uh, and that's uh, where we're headed this morning. Uh, Jesus Christ, who Himself suffered, and we too suffer in Christ. So, we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. It's printed for you in your bulletins. I can turn there in your Bibles. 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Hear God's word. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help in uh, understanding and applying your word this morning. We ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these in his name. Amen. Now, the word trial, uh, I think we often think of it in, in, a, in a certain term, right? We often associate it particularly with a courtroom. You're under trial, and there is a trial that goes on to determine your guilt or your innocence. And that's one of the main ways we think of the word trial. Um, but we also think of trials in terms of things or people in our lives. Isn't that right? Uh, When people in our lives or things in our life are a trial, what are we saying? Saying they're annoying. (laughs) They're hard. They're pain. This situation is such a trial, or so-and-so is such a trial. In other words, when when we say it and express a trial this way, we do not view the person or situation as a good thing, right? We... We see it as a problem in our life, something to be resolved. But the concept of a trial 
doesn't always have such negative connotations, right? We get trial packages of household goods and food in the mail sometimes. That's a good thing. Who doesn't like a trial when it comes in the mail? It's like, ooh, a new granola bar. Sometimes they're not good, but, but you know, there's, there's, it's a trial. Um, when I used to work on boats, before giving a boat back to a customer, we would take it on sea trials that they were called. That's what they were called. And you would go out on the boat, and you would make sure everything was working properly. Uh, it was sort of the best, was sort of the end or culmination of the work you'd done, and it was the most fun aspect of uh, the, the thing that you were going, uh, the, the, the work that you were doing. Runners who run. And preliminary races or qualifying races are often described as trials. The thing you have to pass before proving yourself before going to the next thing, whether you move ahead or not. In other words, it was the culmination of hard work and practice. So what is a trial? We've got a lot of different things going on here, what it could be. A trial is simply a test. And Peter has been, over the course of this letter, starting all the way back in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's been talking about this test of faith. Do you remember? All the way back, at the very beginning of of chapter 1, he said that the tested genuineness of your faith might be proved. And he talks about the test of the fiery trial back in chapter 1. And what kind of test has he been talking about? Well, it's the trial of suffering for the sake of Christ. And that suffering is meant to prove, in that sort of crucible picture, it's meant to prove the faith of the one being tested. The genuineness of it, the beauty of it, the solidity of it. I fear, though, that more often than not, when trials come... We often think in those negative terms. We define a trial simply as negative. That we are experiencing the thing that is terrible, that is not good, that nothing good is going to come out of it, that God, if he's present at all, if, if he's present in the midst of this, and, and oftentimes we say, where is he? He must not be present if I'm suffering like this. But if he is present, we say he must be, he, he's either doing something terrible to me or he's punishing me for some sin that I did. This is often how we view trials. My hope this morning is that we might find consolation, even joy, knowing that the trials we face, A, they're from God. They're meant to show forth the glory of God and the genuineness of our faith. And rather than being a sign of God's abandoning us or punishing us, it's a sign of God's blessing to us, his goodness towards us. Friends, this is cause for joy. (laughs) i got to prove that to a degree, don't I? That trials are a cause for joy. But that's what Peter's saying. He says, rejoice. You have a faithful creator to whom you can entrust your souls even in the midst of suffering on account of your faith. What a glorious thing. So I want to look at this in three ways. First, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. 
And secondly, rejoice, for you are blessed, and the Spirit of God and glory is upon you. And finally, entrust your souls to the judge of all. Peter begins this section here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, with a term of endearment. It's the second time he's done this uh, in, in this uh, letter. He says, beloved or beloved. Um, and it's a term that he was using to encourage this church to live godly lives in the midst of this world. Uh, that's how he used it to begin with in chapter 2. And again, he's saying, beloved. Now, I have to be honest, beloved is a bit of an odd word for me. Um, I've almost only ever exclusively heard it spoken, I mean, other than in Scripture, spoken by pastors from the pulpit. Um, They'll often say things like, dearly beloved, right, at a wedding ceremony or something like that. And if I'm I'm really honest, I, I find it to be a bit uncomfortable. And I think it's because we often think of the person saying beloved as him loving us, right? It's the pastor calling everyone out there beloved. And, and of course, as, as a pastor, a pastor loves people in front of him. But the, oftentimes it doesn't always feel sincere. There's this off-putting nature to it. It feels vapid, un, 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 quite full of truth. And I think it's because we miss the point of the term beloved. It is agape toy. Agape is that beautiful love of God. It is another way of saying, Peter, here, you are the beloved of God. He's not speaking primarily of Peter's love for them, though I'm sure he has affection for them, but he's speaking primarily of God's love for them. And there is really nothing so wonderful to hear than these words, especially in the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering. I think we're tempted to think that God's love would dictate that he not permit the suffering of his beloved, right? That he would protect and care for his treasured possessions in a way that would keep them from harm. That's what we think of when we think of God's love. We think of, if you love me, you wouldn't allow this to happen to me. It's kind of like the one who collects uh, fine porcelain things or china or glass figures. They don't put them down on the floor to be kicked around. They put them high, protected, away. And we think, God, if you, if you really love me, you treat me like that. You can put me up there. And yet, Peter says, you are beloved in your suffering. Somehow this suffering is tied to the love of God for them. And Peter says that they shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes. It's interesting. Peter is using a, a, a little bit of a word play here with the word for surprised. The root of the word has to do with being a stranger. Um, he uses another form of the word at the end of the verse saying, when he says, as though something strange were happening to you. That word strange and surprise have the same sort of roots. And so if you were to see them in the Greek, you would notice that they kind of go together. Um, Working from home has its 
pluses and minuses. And one of the pluses is that it's really quiet. Uh, I, I went, well, I mean, during the summer, lots of times my family's around, but generally speaking, during the school year, it's very quiet. Um, no one comes to the door unless there's an appointment. Um, and when someone comes to the door, it's a surprise. And to be honest, when someone comes to the door, I'm always a little wary, right? Like, who's knocking on my door at this time of day? Kind of look through the peephole to see who it is. Most recently, the person who knocked on my door unexpectedly was the town assessor's office employee. It's not a happy visitation, right? I'm like, can I come in your house and evaluate how much your house is worth? No, you can stay outside for now. Um, And so this word surprise uh, has, and and just so you're aware, the the root of this word surprise is the same root for the word that we get words like xenophobia, stranger, stranger fear. And it's just kind of interesting that 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 language of of fear of the stranger is what is what Peter is drawing on here. Um, And he's saying that Suffering is kind of like the stranger who comes knocking at the door of your life and you are like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. I don't want you here. This isn't what I planned on. This isn't what I expected. Go away. You're not welcome. Isn't that how we are with suffering? (laughs) And why do we feel this way about suffering? Well, for various obvious reasons, it's painful. Suffering is painful. And and I'll add that it does no good to pretend that suffering isn't hard. Right? I think there is a well-intentioned but wrong-headed Christian thing to do when faced with a trial. It's to pretend that it's not a trial. That it's not suffering. A friend might ask you, how are you holding up? I hear things are bad. And you might say, and be tempted to say, oh, I'm doing well. God is good. I'm happy in Jesus. Now, all of those things can be true in suffering, right? Horatio Spofford wrote, it is well with my soul in the midst of terrible family tragedy. Right? And we ought to be able to confess God's goodness and to see it through tears. And I do believe that we can find joy in suffering. That's what this whole passage is about. But what I'm talking about is pretending that the suffering isn't there. That I don't feel the pain or the sorrow. You see, suffering is full of loss and pain, isn't it? Suffering for righteousness' sake. It involves loss of friends, loss of reputation and community standing, loss sometimes even of physical security and pain of that. For believers around the world, oftentimes it involves things like imprisonment and beatings and death. For us, it's a little less, right? It's, it's the emotional pain It's that painful word and slander or the misunderstanding that attends to standing up for Christ and what he proclaims in his word. When we say, yeah, I do actually believe what the Bible says on these things, and people make fun of you, there's a pain involved in it.
And because it's full of this loss and pain, it's not wrong to cry out in our sorrow and our grief. Psalm 22, the beautiful messianic psalm that Christ himself quotes from the cross, says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Suffering is real. We ought not to pretend that it isn't. But Peter says, we ought, suffering is real, but you ought not to be surprised by it. It isn't a stranger knocking at the door. And his reasoning is that we are following the course of Christ. In fact, he says something far more mysterious and wonderful than that. When we suffer for our faith, he says we share in Christ's suffering. We share in it. Now, obviously, there's a caveat we have to make. Our suffering does not make atonement for anybody's sins. Our suffering does not constitute for us salvation or for anyone else. When we suffer, we don't save. In that sense. Rather, it is the other way around. Christ identified with us. He entered our misery. He endured our pain and ridicule and suffering so that we might be saved. In other words, he knit himself to us. And those who put their trust in him are bound in him, in both his death and in his resurrection, in his suffering and in his glory. We're connected to Christ. It's this mystical union that our suffering in some way is sharing in Christ's suffering. Paul speaks of this mystical union Uh, This way in Romans 6, 4, he says, We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are connected to him in his suffering and in his resurrection. And really, this is the amazing thing about suffering for faith. It testifies to that union, to that mystical union with Christ. Friends, suffering is a trial. Because through the trial of suffering, what is manifest, what is proved, what is made known, is that you are beloved. Sounds counterintuitive. But when suffering comes... When we are pilliard for our profession of faith, we can rejoice through the tears because we know we are loved by God, that our life is hid with Christ on high, that we endure suffering in some sense with Him, and we are raised up in glory with Him. We are beloved by Him. We are His treasured possession. Beloved, those that are loved by God, through Christ rejoice because the way of glory is the way of the cross you are beloved I want to spend just a few minutes considering this connection between joy and suffering and glory so my second point is this rejoice 
For you are blessed, and the spirit of glory and of God is upon you. Now, before I go any further, I need to talk about joy, just as I needed to talk a little bit about suffering. I need to talk a little bit about joy. Joy is often equated with happiness, and for good reason. Happiness is that elated feeling that we get when good things are about us, right? Uh, it is associated with dancing and laughter. It attends to such occasions as birthdays and weddings and holidays. But don't you think, and I, at least I, do, I feel this way, happiness is inadequate as, a word, as an English word to get at the concept of joy. Uh, it's, not, it's not enough. Because happiness is opposite of sadness and grief. They're, they're on opposite poles. But I don't think that's the case with biblical joy. Paul exhorts us to do what? To rejoice in all circumstances. To rejoice in the Lord always. And Peter here is suggesting that joy can even come amidst suffering. So how can one have joy in the midst of sorrow and suffering if it simply means those happy feelings? Right? It doesn't work. That's because joy, I think, is something deeper and grander. I think I've shared this illustration before, so I apologize, but it fits, so bear with me. Keller, uh, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, uh, uses an illustration to talk about romance. Uh, he talks, he describes the early stages of romance, the initial stages of coming to get to know your maybe future spouse or whatever, it is akin to a babbling brook at the headwaters of a mighty river. Big cascades and falling rapids and lots of noise, but it's not a lot of water, right? The headwaters of a river. But then when you get to the end, say like the Mississippi, and you come to the end of the, the river, uh, the water is way more powerful than it was at those loud, exuberant stages. But it's quiet. It's deep, and yet it's powerful. I think joy is a little bit like that, right? It doesn't always, it sometimes does, cascade over a waterfall, but sometimes it's quiet. It's peaceful. It's restful, but in the depths of it, it's powerful. Joy has a different horizon. The writer of Hebrews says it this way when he's talking of Christ. He says, Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you see that? For the joy that was set before him. So when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He had joy. Jesus endured. He suffered. He cried. He felt abandoned. And in the midst of it, as he looked forward to glory, for us, as well as for himself, he had joy. Pam, I'm going to use you. It's all right. Pam brought an illustration that I thought was really apropos uh, at our community group the other night. She said, the only thing I can liken it to is childbirth. Now, I can't, right? I can't liken it to that. Um, but she says, you know, there's pain, 
struggle, suffering. But there's joy. Right? Even in the midst of the worst of it, you know the end is this beautiful child. And the thing that keeps our eyes fixed on the horizon of joy and hope is this. We are blessed by God. I've already mentioned that in suffering for Christ, we manifest, we picture our union with Christ. But this is a pretty theoretical idea, uh, abstract. Another way of thinking about it is to say that we are blessed by God. This means we enjoy all the comforts and benefits of being known and loved by God. And one of these blessings, one of these comforts, maybe the foremost of them, is that he has given to us his Holy Spirit. It is the sign. The, when, you know, when we, we talk about baptism, when I describe baptism, when I baptize a baby, I talk about the sign, the significance of it. And one of the significant signs is the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the power of regeneration. We are dwelt We're indwelt by God himself, by his spirit, and it is the sign, it is the the, the thing that says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love. And we know that because we have the deposit of the spirit. So how can we endure suffering? It's to know that God is with us. That it isn't we in our own strength, in our own power that are enduring, but it is God in us. If it was just us, when trials would come, what would we do? We would flee, right? But as we endure, it's a reminder, I have the power of God in me by the grace of the Holy Spirit. I can rejoice because God has blessed me with his spirit. And what does his spirit do? It strengthens us encourages us, comforts us, cries out for us. And when we don't even have the words to say, he equips us, he challenges us and confronts us with our sin and he transforms us and molds us into the image of his son. Friends, you are the beloved of God and God has blessed you with his spirit. He has not blessed you necessarily with earthly comfort, but he has blessed you with the heavenly comforter. And this current of blessing and comfort of God's spirit is just a foretaste of the glory that is to be revealed. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's a reminder that there is a comfort and, a, and an encouragement and a joy that will look drastically different when we will dwell with God in the courts of heaven when the suffering has gone and has finally and forever served its purpose in shaping us and, and molding us into showing forth the faith and beautifying us. But it will be done away with. And we will enjoy the blessing of being with God in glory. Rejoice, for you are blessed, and the spirit of the glory of God is upon you. Finally, and in conclusion, entrust your souls to the judge of all. You'll notice here in our text, 
that there's a shift, right? He's been talking about this beautiful picture of our union with Christ and the suffering that we have that is in Christ and that God is blessing us and he's given us his spirit. But then he says, but, he says, but, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, such an interesting list here. The first three, it kind of goes from the greatest to the least, right? The murderer is, is the wickedest, if you will, and the thief, again. And, and both of the, these things would have been wicked in the Greco-Roman world as well. They were obviously punished. Um, and then the evildoer, is kind of a general term, the one who does evil, not good. And then it jumps drastically down to and the meddler. And, and to be frank, the word here for meddle is a very um, hard word to translate because uh, it's used almost nowhere else. And not just in the Bible, like in all of Greek literature around that time frame. So interpreters have had to piece together kind of an interpretation based on the roots of the words and everything. Um, but the basic sense of it is somebody who is a busybody, somebody who gets involved and in things that don't belong to them. So like murderer, thief, evildoer, and the busybody. I was trying to wonder, kind of wonder what, what this is all about. Well, all of those things produce suffering. Right? If you commit murder, you will suffer. You will suffer the torment of your soul if you do not, uh, if you do not get caught. But then you'll also suffer physically. And same with the thief and the evildoer. But isn't it true? Eventually, the busybody becomes a pariah. Becomes somebody that nobody really wants to hang out with. Because if you tell them anything, they'll get involved. Or they'll kind of overstep their bounds. Causes... All sorts of suffering. But there's something bigger going on than the suffering that someone might face for the sins that they commit in this life. And the text goes there. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? Friends, there is a blessing in suffering. There's a, there's a beauty in suffering. It shows the, the, the love of God for you. But then there's a side to it, which is if we suffer for wickedness, if we suffer for sin, that we will finally stand before a suffering that is far greater and far worse than we could ever think or imagine. text says that everyone is going to stand before this throne, starting with the household of God. He makes this quote from uh, uh, Proverbs 11 in verse 18 that says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? That brings up a whole lot of questions. What do you mean by scarcely saved? It's simply meaning that our salvation required pain and trial. Ultimately, it required the death of Christ himself, the God of glory, the only thing that could save us as those who have been loved by God. The only thing that could save us was the death of Christ himself. And if 
That was what was required to save us. What then becomes of the judgment of the, those who reject the suffering Savior? Friends, I don't know your hearts. I can't read them, but God does. He knows where you stand. Just a warning. Don't suffer on account of sin. Don't. Don't continue headlong in your own self-righteousness or your own desire to prove yourself before God. You can't. There is only one hope, and it's in a suffering Messiah, the one who came and who died for you. Entrust yourself to that one. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Turn and believe. God is coming again to judge. Christ is coming again to judge. But hear this hope, and this is my concluding thought. Christ was judged that we might not be ashamed. Did you notice that little, still a little line there? He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. You might feel ashamed in the culture, right? You might wear the scarlet letter of our society that says, You are not welcome here. Friends, you are the beloved of God. You are bound for glory. You are sharing in the suffering of Christ as you are knit to him in that mysterious union of Christ and us. You are beloved. Entrust your souls to the faithful creator and find joy in the trial. You are partakers of Christ, of his suffering, and of his glory. Let's pray.